Al-Jazeera Podcast. Hey everyone, it's Malika. I'm handing the host mic this week to my colleague Natasha Del Toro. I'll be back next week. Enjoy. In the hot desert sun, Juliana and her young daughter walk along the Mexican border with the United States. She's from Venezuela, a single mother of four, and she's desperate to make her way across. That was May 10th, one of the last days of a policy known as Title 42. It previously allowed authorities to turn back migrants on the grounds that they might be carrying COVID-19. Once Title 42 expired, Many believed it would now be easier to get into the United States. Right now, hundreds of people are lined up at the border, and this is nothing compared to what we're going to see on Thursday. On May 11th, that is when Title 40... But not Juliana. She was rushing because she felt the new rules would be tougher. We've got to get in today. Tomorrow they could refuse us because Title 42 ends and the new rules begin. So which is the truth? What does the end of Title 42 actually mean for people trying to get asylum in the United States? I'm Natasha Del Toro, in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. To figure out what's going on at the U.S.-Mexico border, I'm speaking to someone who's been covering migration there for quite a while. I'm John Holman. I'm one of the Al Jazeera correspondents in Mexico, and I've been covering the country since 2009. And during that time, like regularly covering the migrant flow through Mexico and migrants heading up to the U.S.'s southern border. Wow. And you've been in Mexico that whole time and since 2009? Yeah, since 2009. Started as a lonely intern. You have quite a background now there in Mexico and seen a lot of changes happening. Now, you you were on the U.S.-Mexico border in Ciudad Juarez on the night that Title 42 expired and obviously in the lead up to it. Could you describe for me what was the mood that night? What did you see on the ground? The mood on the ground was really quite, it was local Juarez time. I think we were you know, among the only people there at that particular border crossing. We saw a family of Venezuelans. A lot of the people in Juarez that were trying to get across were from Venezuela. And they said that they'd just come across like us to have a look and see if anything had changed, if there were going to be a rush of people trying to head across after Title 42. And there weren't. And um, I think that was one of the big surprises about covering this, was that everyone had been expecting a rush of people trying to get across the border, trying to ask for asylum once Title 42 had ended because it had been so stringent. And I think US authorities will probably be feeling that they've been successful in that way because their messaging was like, don't try and come across post-Title 42. We haven't got an open border. And in fact, things might in some ways get harder for you. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas with a message ahead of the expiration of Title 42. I want to be very clear. Our borders are not open. People who cross our border unlawfully and without a legal basis to remain will be promptly processed and removed. 
So it was a really surprising outcome. Yeah, like, as you say, it's like sort of defied all of the expectations. So that's really interesting. Why don't we go back a little bit and, and if you could explain to me what was Title 42? What did it actually mean on the ground for migration through the U.S.-Mexico border over the past three years? Yeah, so Title 42 was originally part of the U.S.'s um, legal code to do from public health from 1944. It's an article that says that if anyone's bringing in communicable diseases from outside of the country or suspected of, then the authorities have got a, a right to basically stop them and turn them back around. So the Trump administration basically got it out, dusted it off, and from 2020, and said, well, we've got, you know, COVID-19, the pandemic going on right now, so we should be able to stop people just in case they're carrying COVID-19. And on the ground, that meant that it was used to stop people that wanted to ask for asylum in many cases and just turn them back around without having to hear their cases very, very quickly. So normally their claims would have been considered under international law, U.S. law, but because of the pandemic, they were turned away, no questions asked, because of Title 42. Yeah, there was a lot of outcry during the three years that it was in place um, by civil organizations saying you just can't do that with people that are asking for asylum. These are people that are coming from positions of violence, discrimination across the Americas and beyond. And it wasn't just under President Trump's administration. Afterwards, President Biden was using it too, and in some cases enlarging it. His administration also did try and strike it down, but once it couldn't do that, it started using it as well. So there has been a lot of disquiet throughout about Title 42. It sounds like you're saying on one hand, the conventional wisdom was that it would be easier for people to get into the U.S. after Title 42 expired. And we've certainly heard that point made in the U.S. media. You also hear border officials say, hey, if you thought it was bad before, just wait until you see what happens in 72 to 96 hours. You also had the Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, who said on Sunday that the number of people crossing the border had actually been cut in half since Title 42 ended. So what exactly would be harder about getting in now? Yeah, definitely, as you say, that we, we were seeing big queues of people trying to get across while Title 42 was still existent. And, you know, I was in contact with organizations and, and colleagues in Tamaulipas Elsewhere on the border, the same thing here. People like desperately trying to wade across rivers um, while it was still existent. And like you say, we wouldn't have guessed at that at all. But the rules that were being brought in after Title 42, which the Biden administration said that they spent a long time preparing them, presumably to try and put a stop and a halt on people in their tracks. One of them was an app called CBP-1. CBP-1 is an application that allows travelers to access a variety of CBP services from their mobile device. It's been around for a couple of months, and basically, with the end of Title 42, you have to apply for asylum via this app from central to North Mexico, which is the only place that it works, 
and through the app you can get an appointment to ask for asylum. So there's no more knocking on the on on the door. There's no more jumping over the fence and then asking for asylum on the other side. We've been talking to a lot of people about that app in the last few months, not just now. At first, it had a load of glitches in it, and it was really hard just to get it to work. That's what we were being told. Now, when we started talking to people this time around, we were speaking to a young, very eloquent Venezuelan called Jeremy, and he said that the, some of the glitches have been ironed out that were making it really hard, like when the app tried to take a photo of you, especially if you had dark skin, then occasionally it didn't recognise you. Problems like that and they'd ironed out those problems just by omitting those stages. But he still said that he'd been on this app for a month and he still hadn't managed to get an appointment. He was like, God, going through the jungle was better than using this app. You know you'll cross the jungle in two or three days, but you never know when you get an appointment and it's like a weight on you. So you can just imagine the volume of people trying to get on it and trying to use that. Basically, the United States is trying to move the entire asylum process online. And advocates are saying to us, that's actually not a bad idea. It makes things a lot more orderly. And we've been there at the border over the last few years. And yeah, when you have like unofficial lists of people having to ask for asylum, it's really difficult for them. But the proviso is that the app then has to work well. It can't just be frustrating people who are living in tents, you know, in the baking sun and trying to like, you know, press the button for a month to get through. After the break, more on the replacements to Title 42 and what it could all mean for people seeking asylum in the United States. I'm Kevin Hurton, host of our documentary podcast, Al Jazeera Investigates. We've got a new series called Gold Mafia, where we expose some of the biggest smugglers and money launderers in Africa. Look for a new episode wherever you get your podcasts. So this app is one of the reasons you're saying there wasn't the rush of migrants after Title 42 expired. Were there other reasons why they thought it would be easier to come before Title 42 expired? So this is what we were told more than the app by a lot of people is, or U.S. authorities were really trying to drill down on the message that if you enter the U.S. unlawfully, then you could have a five-year ban on being able to re-enter the country to ask for asylum again. And you could face prosecution. Here's Secretary Mayorkas again on May 10th. We are delivering tougher consequences for unlawful entry. During the first half of this fiscal year, we returned, removed, and expelled more than 665,000 people. So I think a lot of the people are thinking, under Title 42, if I enter the country, there's no records of me. I'm just sent straight back into Mexico, which was one of the, I suppose, advantages for people under Title 42, that because they wanted to turn around so quick, they weren't really taking registers of people. Now there's going to be consequences if someone crosses the border unlawfully and gets caught. It's not just going to be that they're going to get put back without a record and they can keep trying again and again. It's that there might actually be prosecution or that ban. And in terms of confusion about what this change in policy actually means, can you talk about how rumors at the border also drive whether people think it's easier or harder to get into the United States? Yeah, rumors at the border have always driven things just as much as hard fact. And that's because it's hard for people to access some of those hard facts. 
Even for us as reporters, we're sort of on calls with US officials which uh, explain the policy that they're going to be rolling out. And by the end of the call, you've always got a lot of questions at exactly how this is going to happen. So imagine if you're staying in a tent with not much access to internet, how are you going to understand exactly the intricacies of how each policy is going to affect you? Everyone's talking to each other on the border and trying to ascertain like how easy it's going to be for me with my family versus you as an individual going along. There's also people smugglers along the route, Mexico from Guatemala. They want people to travel. So they're always going to be trying to convince people, hey, things are just about to get better for you. It's time now or never for you to make the push. So you put in all of those factors and then you factor in as well the desperation of people. They're dealing with a situation in which basically they're on their absolute last resort. They've got no money. And all of those factors make it really hard for people to just make a really informed decision in that moment, the rumour mill is sort of paramount. So John, even though you've seen so many people feeling that they had to get in before Title 42 ended, there are many others who've interpreted this change to mean that it's now going to be easier to get in without Title 42, right? So does that mean that we could still see an influx of people trying to come into the United States in the the coming weeks? I think there's definitely a probability of that happening. We were just speaking to officials in Juarez that deal with migration, and they were saying, well, we expect the numbers to stay low for now, but in the future they could definitely rise. One thing that US officials were highlighting as well is about 22 million displaced people in the Americas. Now, whatever the rules on the US's southern border and whatever the deterrents, a huge number of desperate people that always, everyone that we encounter on their way up, I always ask them, what's your plan B if this doesn't work out? People don't have a plan B in general. This is it. They're really betting everything on being able to get into the US. So when you see people with that desperation, whatever the rules on the border, they're going to still keep coming. So... As much as there's been this big focus on Title 42, there are also broader sort of new border policies that the Biden administration has just put into place that are pretty strict, if you really look at them. This includes not giving asylum to people who uh, first pass through another country and the ability to send non-Mexican nationals back to Mexico. Would you say that, in a way, this is the real story? I definitely say that it's a real story now, now that Title 42 has ended. And it's what we were already going on to cover, actually, the day after, and how that plays out. The rule that says that people will be ineligible for asylum in the United States unless they've asked for it in other countries on the route. Using the CBP app does provide an exemption to that rule. But like much of the process of seeking asylum in the US, John says the practicalities can be confusing. And there are a couple of problems. First, that those countries are quite dangerous, parts of them. Um, People are passing through Tamaulipas, Juarez, uh, parts of the country where there's a lot of organized crime who are actually really interested in migrants. They like preying on them. They control the people smuggling industries and they want to extort people. There's also problems with the asylum systems in those countries. For me, that's a real focal point because we have to see how that plays out on the ground. In Mexico, for example, if people have to ask for asylum there, there's a really overworked, overstretched 
asylum system. It's really hard to even ask for it. There's always a crowd around the Comar state headquarters, the Mexican Refugee Aid Commission. Hoping for answers to their pleas for asylum, the wait can last for months. I'm not sure if or not the US officials have thought about maybe the logistics of that for people and how they're going to get even that note that says, yes, you asked for asylum in Mexico. No, we haven't been able to give it to you. And what's going to happen to those people while they're waiting for it? The rule about people being put back into Mexico, that's specifically for people from Haiti, Venezuela, Cuba and Nicaragua. We're going to have to keep abreast of what's happening to those people once they're put back over into um, into Mexico soil. But yeah, that's absolutely going to be the story. And just seeing what's next, as we were chatting about, there might be a big rush to come, you know? I definitely don't think that you can just call it now. There was no surge and that's the deal forever. I think we have to look at two weeks, three weeks, when people coming up the route start to make their choices and see what happens then. And I'm sure that President Biden's administration in the US is going to be thinking the same thing. Whatever you think about migration and their right to be in the United States or not, there are some incredibly vulnerable people. They've gone through countries in which everything they've had with them has been taken by police and the authorities that should have been protecting them up on the route. And they've really got into the borderlands with the United States with nothing but just this kernel of hope that they're trying to keep alive. So it's good to focus on policy, especially for us right now. Um, I guess it's also good, especially for US officials, those in customs and border protection, to remember what they're dealing with when they're speaking to these people and treating them, even when they're possibly rejecting them from the country, that they are an extremely vulnerable population that's been through a lot. Hmm. Definitely. John, we've talked a lot about how unpredictable a lot of this is right now and all of the unknowns about what these policy changes are going to mean on the ground. What do you want for people to take away from this story? I think what I wanted people to take away from our own reporting that's on our channel or at this podcast, that they would have a slightly more clear idea from both sides, people in the United States perhaps that are wondering what's happening on the border, people that are maybe listening to us, they speak English, that are in those countries in Latin America or further afield, and they'd have some idea of what they were going into, their possibilities, the legal pathways, their chances of success. And I think that's about all we can do. You'd hope that you put a grain of sand into making things clearer and less sensational and taken a little bit away from either the hysteria of like, look, the invading hordes coming to, you know, take our land. Or on the other side, people perhaps from the left in the United States that see things as so uncomplex in some ways when this is a really complex issue. There's a lot of things that are being weighed both by the administration and also by the migrants. And to bring that complexity to it and not just go to one side or the other, I think is what will make people trust our reporting and follow it, even if they don't agree with it or not. And I think that's our responsibility. For the people at the border, one simple fact remains. Regardless of which policies in place, they'll keep trying to get to the US. People like Juliana, the mother we heard from who fled Venezuela, 
muy baja la economía. The economy is really low. You can't support yourself. A salary can only get you some flour for bread. Hopefully, we can get in and find a job. As a mother, and there are a lot of us, we want to work for our children for their future. We hope that the U.S. will open their doors to us and help us. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Ashish Malhotra with Khaled Sultan, Nagin Oliai, Amy Walters, Sonia Bagat, Chloe K. Lee, Miranda Lynn, and me, Natasha Del Toro, in from Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Adam Abugad and Munera Aldasari are our engagement producers. Alexander Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Nate Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back on Friday.